In the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. What a day. We are finally here at Palm Sunday and Holy Week begins. In six days, or what we know as Good Friday, Jesus will die. And he knows it. I want you to notice that for ten long chapters, St. Luke, the gospel writer, has been telling us that Jesus had his face set toward Jerusalem. For ten long chapters, we are told that Jesus was going to Jerusalem to die. He was not going to Jerusalem for a vacation. He was not going to Jerusalem for a religious feast, even though Passover was very near. He was not going to Jerusalem to visit friends, even though, as I mentioned last week in Bethany, he stopped to visit his dear friends Lazarus and Martha and Mary. Folks, Jesus was going to Jerusalem to die. And he had not one single doubt about that fact. Beginning way back ten chapters ago at the Transfiguration on the Holy Mountain, chapter 9, verse 51 tells us, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. The same chapter, verse 53, tells us, But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. Chapter 13, verse 22 tells us, he went on his way through the towns and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. The same chapter, verse 33, has Jesus saying, nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Chapter 17, 11 tells us, on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. Chapter 1831 tells us, And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. And then in today's reading, they are almost there. We're told that Jesus and his disciples are in Jericho, which is about 14 miles away from Jerusalem at the bottom of the mountain. Jerusalem's way up here. And just before they leave Jericho in chapter 19, 11, we are told Jesus proceed, proceeded to tell them a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. And I will come to that parable in just a moment. But first, it was very early in the day on that first Palm Sunday. They were this close to Jerusalem. And the disciples still didn't get it. They didn't understand. To be honest, I'm not quite sure that I would have gotten it at that time either. As much as I try at times, sometimes my expectations are not in line with God's expectations. In Jericho that morning, the disciples still had this preconceived notion that Jesus would be crowned king when he arrived into Jerusalem. And so knowing this, Jesus told them this last-minute parable, parable of the ten servants, 
so as to ward off any misunderstanding of what would happen when they got there. In abbreviated form, this is what Jesus told them. The nobleman goes to a distant country to receive for himself a kingdom, and then he will return. The nobleman gives ten pounds to ten slaves, one pound each, for which he holds them accountable while he is gone. The citizens hate the nobleman and do not want him ruling over them. At the end, the nobleman says, bring those enemies of mine who didn't want to reign, want me to reign over them and kill them before me. That's pretty harsh, isn't it? Now listen to the parable again with the ears of our post-resurrection Christian theology. My dear disciples, we are going to Jerusalem and I will be put to death. But I will be resurrected and I will go into a distant country, into heaven, into my kingdom, but I will return. In the meantime, I will leave with you something very valuable. I will give you everything necessary for you to spread my word throughout the world and I will hold you accountable. There will be many in this world who will hate me and they will reject my kingship. At the end, at my second coming, I will hold everyone accountable. Those who have accepted my kingship and my kingdom will be welcomed into the kingdom. Those who have not accepted my kingship will be banished to the place prepared for the devil and his angels. Wow. So now it's perfectly clear to the disciples what's going to happen in Jerusalem when they get there, right? No, they still don't get it. They leave Jericho, which by the way is 825 feet below sea level. And they follow the path up the mountain to Jerusalem, which by the way is 2,540 feet above sea level which means they walked uphill almost 3,400 feet until they finally drew near to Bethphage, to Bethany, which is on the top of Mount Olivet, maybe two miles from Jerusalem. Now imagine with me, if you will, that like Jesus, as I mentioned last week, you have six days before you die and you know it. You know that you are going to die. What is going through your mind? How do you feel? How do you act? You sit around, weep grievously, angry at God for making this happen, crying out to whoever will listen. It's not fair. That's what some people do. Maybe I too would do that for a while. Do you visit your family one more time just to tell them that you love them? That's what some people do. That's what I hope I would do. Do you quit your job and travel to the most exotic places in the world? That's what Morgan Freeman and Jack Nicholas did in the movie Bucket List. Let me tell you, Jesus knew without a doubt that he was about to be put to death. And he deliberately walks right into it. What else does he do? Well, by going up to Jerusalem, Jesus accomplishes four things which had been planned, by the way, when he set his face to go toward Jerusalem. 
Maybe that's what he and Moses and Elijah were talking about on the mountain. We don't know. First, he causes a public demonstration on purpose, which made the Jewish leaders even more angry and conniving. Second, he forces the hand of the Jewish leaders, bringing their timetable into line with God's timetable. Third, he fulfills the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9, your king comes riding on a donkey. And fourth, he shows himself to be the Messiah who comes in peace rather than in war. Because you see, Jesus knows that Jerusalem is the place where he will die, and we do not take that lightly, because Jesus was in anguish about his death, and at one point even sweated blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. But Jesus also knows that Jerusalem is the place where he will be resurrected, where his church will be born at Pentecost. And he knows that once the Holy Spirit comes upon the disciples in Jerusalem, they will become his witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and throughout the ends of the world. In other words, Jerusalem is the place of Jesus' death, but it will also be the starting place for the proclamation of the good news of the gospel. Okay, so Jesus and his disciples are now at the top of the Mount of Olives overlooking Jerusalem with the Kidron Valley in between. I think that Jesus is purposefully demonstrating who he is. Zechariah in another prophecy about the coming Messiah says in 14.4, on that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. Folks, that sounds like Jesus to me. And yet, even though he may be fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah, I can also see Jesus standing atop the Mount of Olives, taking a deep breath knowing what will happen to him as he begins his descent into the valley at Jerusalem's gates. Jesus had already sent two of his disciples to fetch a colt for him to ride on into Jerusalem. Into Jerusalem. This fulfilled another prophecy of Zechariah 9.9, which states, Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king comes to you. He is righteous and having salvation, humble, riding on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And don't doubt for a moment that Jesus knew he was fulfilling prophecy. Because before this, he had been walking all the way from Galilee to Jerusalem, following the path 3,400 feet up the mountain, gets to the gates of Jerusalem, and all of a sudden he decides he wants to ride a donkey? Folks, he's not tired of walking. Jesus is making a bold statement about his identity as the Messiah. All through this Palm Sunday narrative and all of our lectionary readings, we get glimpses of both the divinity and the humanity of Jesus. We especially see his divinity 
In our epistle reading this morning, so wonderfully read by Julie, I have to say that because I didn't tell her about the psalm. This is from St. Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. It's a wonderful ancient Christian hymn that was written about 30 years after the death of Jesus, which means that this hymn is almost 2,000 years old. Listen again. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, he emptied himself. He didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The second person of the Holy Trinity emptied himself and became human. We know what it means to empty something. If you have a pitcher of water, you first have to have the pitcher that contains some amount of water, and then we must pour out the contents until the pitcher contains nothing. However, even when the pitcher no longer has water, it still contains air. It occurs to me that Christ, although in human form, fully human, continued to carry with him divine power. He was able to stop a storm in its tracks. He was able to heal all kinds of people. He was able to raise people from the dead. And that's why we speak of Christ as fully human and fully divine. So there is a sense in which Christ indeed emptied himself, but he retained something of his godly power. On that first Palm Sunday, I think the crowd saw something of both natures of Jesus. As he comes to the bottom of the Mount of Olives into the Kidron Valley, this huge crowd is overwhelmed with joy. The people, they begin to cry out, Jesus must be the one. He's the new king of Israel. Praise God. Hosanna. And as Jesus comes closer, people are yelling, bless the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise the news, the new son of David. Blessed is the king of Israel. And the crowd, they can't wait to see what happens as Jesus comes into Jerusalem. But we already know what happens, don't we? This week, we will walk with him on Monday, Thursday, the most profound, through the most profound and mysterious words ever spoken. This is my body. This is my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. This week we will sit with him at the all-night vigil in the Garden of Gethsemane, watching from a distance his agony, his anguish, his mock trial, his torture, his passion. This Week we will stand beneath him on Good Friday through the darkest hour ever experienced on planet Earth. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is finished. This week we will lay beside him, dead, on Holy Saturday in a borrowed tomb.
And at the end of this week, on Easter Sunday, we will shine with him in the most glorious light of his resurrection. Let us bow our heads and pray. Lord Jesus Christ, in this sacred and solemn week, when we see again the depth and the mystery of your redeeming love, help us to follow where you go, to stop where you stumble, to listen when you cry, to hurt as you suffer, to bow our heads in sorrow as you die, so that when you are raised to life again, we may share in your endless joy. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.